Today I am joined by Carolyn Nelson, the chair of our school planning practice here at Macmillan Education. Carolyn's been with Macmillan for seven years now. She holds a bachelor's in English literature and a master's degree in special education. Carolyn was the director of admissions for 15 years at Landmark School, the internationally renowned school for children and adolescents with language-based learning disabilities. Carolyn was also an adjunct professor of special education in the graduate schools at Simmons College and Lesley University, where she taught educational assessment, identifying learning disabilities, and instruction and assessment methodologies for students with learning differences and disabilities. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carolyn, to discuss what parents should know about language-based learning disabilities. And to our listeners, it's important to note that given how large this topic is, Carolyn and I have decided to focus on younger children today for the sake of time. So Carolyn, can you start by defining the term language-based learning disability? Absolutely, Betsy. Language-based learning disabilities are a category of academic challenges that arise from a child's failure to acquire or develop basic capacities of language. Those capacities include listening, speaking, reading, and writing. Now, we know all children develop at their own pace, and there is a very wide range of normal development. But when a child fails to develop proficiencies in one or more of these areas within that normal range of development, he or she should be evaluated for a language-based learning disability. Actually, one in five or 20% of the population has a language-based learning disability. So it's actually very common. And dyslexia is the most commonly diagnosed As you probably know, dyslexia really impacts the decoding system or the sound system of language. That makes it hard for children to decode or sound out unfamiliar words. But other forms of language-based learning disabilities also impact oral expression, reading comprehension, writing, including spelling, and math. We don't often think of math as a language-based learning disability, But if we think about our math experiences in school, math really is a language in and of itself with symbols and rules, much like written language. So math is often very, very much included in a language-based learning disability category. Now, like anything, there is a range of significance within language-based learning disabilities. Some are very mild or minor. Those, fortunately, can often be addressed by Nurturing teachers with good training, um, parents who are supportive and provide a lot of um, perhaps outside help for students, and maybe some accommodations within the classroom. But if the language-based learning disability is significant, it's very clear that the appropriate intervention is specialized instruction. Awesome. Thank you for that, Carolyn. And I often hear the term difference rather than disability when people in our field refer to learning profiles. But I notice you seem to prefer the term disability. Why is that? I do, Bessie, and it's very intentional. Um, The reason is really founded in the fact that disability is the language of the law. In other words, if a child is in second grade and is struggling to read, 
it will be absolutely necessary for that child to go through a process of being identified and qualified or diagnosed as having a learning disability in order to get services through an IEP. So it's an access, it's actually an access to the supports that are necessary. When we are thinking about our older students, high school and college, at those ages, self-advocacy becomes so important. So students really do need to understand that in order to approach a professor, let's say, and request an accommodation such as a copy of notes or the ability to use books on tape, those students are also going to have to be able to say that they have a learning disability. So although it might sound harsh, it really is a matter of access for students. And then it's incumbent upon us as adults to help them understand that their learning disability in one particular area does not impact their intelligence or their abilities and strengths in other areas. Thank you. I really, I really love how you put that. And what are some of the contributing factors to language-based learning disabilities? It's a great question. Um, We now know there's been so much research around LBLD in recent decades. We now know that it's what we call multifactorial, which means a number of factors contribute to language-based learning disabilities. Four are primary. Probably the most um, significant contributor is genetics or heredity. We know that if a parent has a language-based learning disability, there is a 40 to 60% chance that one of their children may have that same disability. Saw that over and over again in my career as an educator, where parents would come in heartbroken because their children were diagnosed, and then they would share, I had those same issues in school myself. So if a parent knows that they themselves have a language-based learning disability, they should keep a really close eye on their children to to watch for early signs. Another is the structure and function of the brain. Language-based learning disabilities are neurological, so they absolutely have roots in the way the brain takes information and processes it. One of the major contributors in this field in the last, I don't know, maybe two decades is Sally Shaywitz and her husband, Bennett, who have a lab at Yale. Um, And it was through their work that we were really able to watch children. They studied children primarily through neuroimaging as they read. And we can actually see the differences in the brains, meaning the shape and the size and the areas that are firing when disabled readers read and when non-disabled readers read. So there are real differences in the functioning of the brain. Actually, a fun fact related to that is that when children receive appropriate intervention for their reading disability, you can look at before and after neuroimages of their brain and see differences in the way the brain functions. So we really know that we can rewire, in some senses, rewire the functioning of the brain through appropriate interventions. Another contributing factor is environmental. We know how important enriching environments are for young children in general, but it specifically relates to reading as well. Interestingly, we are not born with reading brains. 
that has to be cultivated. Like so many developmental skills, they have to be nurtured and cultivated over time, beginning really very early in life. So we know that children that come from stimulating and responsive environments tend to develop stronger language skills. And sadly, the opposite of that is also true. We know that children who grow up in impoverished environments have about a 40% increased chance of developing a language-based learning disability. And finally, the last contributing factor is quality instruction. We know how to diagnose and we know how to treat reading disabilities. There are research-based interventions that are readily available and teacher training that is available to educators. We just need to get those materials and those skilled people in front of the children who need them the most. So it sounds like other than, you know, providing an enriching environment for young children, as well as quality teaching and instruction, that language-based learning disabilities can't quite be prevented, per se. I think you're right. Sadly, I think that's right. You know, they can be mitigated. You know, as I was saying, if if you are a parent with a language-based learning disability, you can certainly be closely watching um, and trying to be preventative. You know, that's really the, the best intervention for these disabilities is to be preventative. You know, um, talking with your pediatrician if you suspect something is not developing appropriately. Um, you know, we, we're wonderful at providing colorful mobiles and toys and stimulating games for our children, but we need to also make sure that we are responding to them and stimulating them with lots of language, lots and lots of language. And that can be spoken language as easily as it can be books or recorded language. What are some of the early signs of language-based learning disabilities that families, teachers, you know, caretakers, nannies should watch for? Yeah, great question. So, It's interesting that there are markers or predictors of language-based learning disabilities that we can see before reading is ever introduced. You know, it used to be that we thought, oh, well, we have to let children start school and watch to see how they respond to reading instruction or writing instruction. But we now know that we don't have to wait. So there are some really important early developmental predictors that families should be lo- families and caregivers should be looking for. The early ones before we get to school include delays in language production. That's oral language. So again, there's a wide range of normal development, but if we start to see that a child is really exceeding that range in terms of developing vocabulary, stringing words together, trying to communicate their thoughts, and maybe even having some frustration communicating their thoughts. That's an early, that's an early warning sign. It doesn't mean anything in and of itself, but it's something to pay attention to. The correlate to that is listening comprehension. So speaking and listening. So if we observe that a child doesn't seem to be picking up on language cues, you know, perhaps not responding in a reciprocal way, not being able to follow simple directions, um, maybe not developing vocabulary, or having difficulty following along with stories or conversations. All of those have to do with the child's understanding of oral language. 
other predictors to be to be noting. Then when we get to school, it becomes a little bit easier to observe and it's a little bit more um, sequential. So we know as we begin to, you know, in kindergarten, even in pre-K in, in these years, um, introduce alphabet learning, color names, letter sounds, things of that nature. Those can be difficulties there, can be indicators that a child might be heading to experience some difficulties with decoding or the sounding out of language. Also, as we start to actually read text, teachers and parents can be observing or listening for what appears to be their understanding of what they're reading. So for example, if a student is reading a story, they may mispronounce an unfamiliar word. If they notice that that word doesn't make sense, they'll probably go back and try to fix it. But if they don't pick up on their own errors, that could be an indication that their reading comprehension is suffering. So again, something to be looking for. Also related to reading is a slower pace. You know, a slower pace usually indicates that something is really effortful. And so that means that either recognizing or decoding those words is taking a lot of energy away from the child's appreciation or understanding of what he's reading. So that we call that fluency. So when Fluency isn't present. If a child is struggling to read, to get that print off the page, that's also another indication that there could be some some reading challenges going on there. And then again, the other side of reading is writing. Written expression is really the other side of the coin from oral expression. So we want to look for some of those very same predictive factors. So we want to look at things like the development of vocabulary. Does the child seem to be acquiring vocabulary at a good pace? Is he using that vocabulary in his written expression? Look for things like word order. It's very often indicative of a language issue if a child is confusing the word order within sentences, both in writing and in oral language. Is the child struggling to acquire the sense of sentence structure, the rules of grammar, And then certainly as we move through the later primary grades, we also want to make sure that they are able to construct beyond sentences and begin to develop paragraphs and then later essays. Thank you for that, Carolyn. And what should you do as a parent if you notice any of these early indicators of LBLD? The very best advice I can give any parent is do not wait. I said this recently, uh, a child who is a poor reader in first grade is very likely to be a poor reader in third or fourth grade. So the importance of getting an evaluation early and then securing the right interventions is absolutely life-changing. It's nothing short of that. It's absolutely critical. We need to be preventative. So it's really important when we talk about an evaluation to look at all the very different areas that can contribute to language. We've talked about some of those already today. We've talked about things like heredity. We need to understand family history. We need to assess brain functioning through cognitive and other neuropsychological measures. We need to have an understanding of the child's memory and attention and academic skills. Those, that's not an exhaustive list, but those are the most 
probably the most important in the most general categories of a full evaluation. And that's really what's imperative. We need to know the specific areas of language that are impacted before we can determine what kind of interventions will make the difference. So the evaluation is absolutely key. So say I'm a parent that has noticed signs of LBLD in my child. How do I go about obtaining a neuropsych evaluation? So glad you asked that. Um, two, two basic routes, I would say, Betsy. Um, very often it is parents and teachers together who are noting these difficulties. And so in cases like that, good communication between home and school is imperative. And when teachers and parents believe that there is something that needs a further look, one route is to request that the school complete an evaluation of the child. So that falls under special education law again. And there is certainly a very defined process that teachers and parents and school districts need to initiate and follow through. But that is one cost-free option for families to get that evaluation. And then the next step would be based on that evaluation. If the child qualifies as having a learning disability, there's that word again, then he or she would be able to receive services. The other route that we often see is that families will pursue these evaluations privately. And usually these are conducted by certified neuropsychologists. And those people could, can be located through referrals from perhaps your pediatrician, um, perhaps a counselor, other medical professionals that may be involved in your family. Um, certainly folks like us, consultants, reading specialists, people like that can provide referrals and references. And as we now know, just about everything can be found online. And that's another source for families. So thank you for all of that really helpful, insightful information, Carolyn. Now I'm wondering, what are the challenges of students diagnosed with language-based learning disabilities? Mm. There are many. I've done this work for a long time, and I've seen many children with different types of struggles. They're the expected areas, Betsy. You know, um, the subjects in school, it will be reading, writing, as I mentioned, math is a language that will be impacted, reading comprehension. And we know that when children experience a lot of difficulties in school, um, these difficulties are very often internalized. So along with the observable academic challenges, we also see that students are at risk for anxiety and depression. Um, in some extreme cases, it could be school refusal. Some children will develop somatic complaints. You know, those are the, I mean, I have a stomach ache or my head hurts and, you know, just ways to try to avoid the experience of school. We also see challenges at times in social skills. You know, as I mentioned, oral expression can be impacted and Sometimes it's hard for children with language-based learning disabilities to keep pace with the banter of, of classmates and other children. And if they feel they can't keep up or if other children perceive that they can't keep up, they may start to feel isolated. So 
Social interactions can be impacted. Memory is certainly impacted, and we might not expect that. But much of the storage or the coding that we do of information to store it in our brains and in our memories is done using language. So memory can be impacted. And then another area is self-regulation. Very often we see the little the little children who may cry in school or tantrum. Older children might, you know, just start taking walks, you know, frequently during the day to avoid, you know, stressful situations in the classroom. Um, so we need to be mindful of those other at-risk categories for children, even beyond the academic challenges. And then one last note on that, Betsy, is that you know, there's there's a term that we use educationally and medically called comorbidity, meaning situations or conditions that exist simultaneously. It's very interesting to note that often language-based learning disabilities are comorbid or coexistent with ADHD and also with executive functions. So beyond the academic and social challenges that we know the learning part, the academic part of language-based learning disabilities can create or contribute to. We also know that there are additional challenges that come with ADHD and executive function challenges that very often accompany uh, the diagnosis of a language-based learning disability. And for our listeners that are older or have older children, What if you've missed the early identification window, if you've noticed these signs of LBLD later on in life, maybe in high school or in college? And that really does happen. You know, very, very bright students, students with good compensatory skills can often compensate or mask, compensate for or mask these early challenges. You know, good listening skills. If I take really good notes, If I'm a good listener and I can really focus, you know, maybe I can get away without reading that book or I can listen to it on tape or or things like that. So it is not uncommon for students to start to hit some obstacles as they're older in high school, middle school, high school and college. So it's not too late. There are many adults that I know who have been evaluated as adults and had an aha moment like, That explains why these things have been so hard for me. And sometimes just that understanding is so valuable in and of itself. But it also, again, you know, allows people to advocate for themselves and what they need. You know, so again, the college student who does need to listen to books on tape or use some of those great note-taking devices that now exist, specialized pens and speech to text and things like that, those are hugely impactful for young adults and professional adults as well. So I would say if there's any suspicion that this might sound like you, get an evaluation and and find out and see what might be available to further support you. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I feel like I've learned a lot about language-based learning disabilities today and how we can detect them Um, and support children who may have them moving forward. Thanks again. My pleasure, Betsy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wise Advice on Educational Planning. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.